Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, and welcome to Third Act. Today, we're back with the second part of our Women in Wealth series. If you missed part one, our sponsor, the Athena Alliance, hosts live salons for their members on a variety of topics. One of the most popular series of salons has been around women in wealth. Several weeks ago, we took Women in Wealth Part One and repurposed it into a podcast. It's in our archives, and I suggest you go back and listen to it if interested. Today's salon is hosted by Coco Brown, the CEO of the Athena Alliance, and features Tama Smith, a financial planning advisor with Brighton Jones, and founder of the Women Living a Richer Life division within Brighton Jones, and Manisha Takur, author of Get Financially Naked, How to Talk Money with Your Honey. On today's show, they talk about how to ensure you're financially compatible with your partner. Manisha and Tama also cover how and when to pick a financial advisor, even if you don't have millions of dollars in the bank, and a very important topic to this audience, how to say no to your adult children. Mm, We all need that advice. So here we go. And let me know what you think by leaving a review or send me a comment on LinkedIn. Enjoy the show. This is part two of a session that we did with Manisha and Tama, and it was so well received that, and also we only let them get, you know, sort of three quarters of the way through their, through their presentation. So we had to stop and say, we need a part two. And really what we were talking about is both very pragmatic, deep, you know, things we need to be thinking about in terms of personal financial wealth management. And that doesn't mean wealth as in we are wealthy, because that's personally defined for one thing. And for another, it's not just about whether or not you're wealthy and how to do something with your wealth. It's about how do you how do you get to that place where whatever you have continually builds for you so that you know we as women are increasingly independent in the way that we get to manage our lives and i think it was you manisha who said who who talked about vocational freedom that's such an important way of looking at things because i think it used to be that we think about retirement now we're thinking about vocational freedom how do i get to that point where i get to do what i want to do Mm -hmm. as opposed to what I have to do. And that's really what this is in part about. It's about, yes, we're working hard every day and, you know, we're counting on our base incomes and our, our bonuses and whatever else is there for us. But also how do we turn all of that into something that makes something for us? And the second part of the conversation that we're having too is recognizing that this is new territory for most women, that this is not a comfort zone for us, either because we haven't lived through the osmosis of learning about financial management in the way that our male counterparts have. For example, my 19 year old son, you know, he's, he said, Hey, I've got a little bit of money in my bank account and I want to go buy some stock. I can't imagine hearing that from my daughter. And I think about that. I'm like, why, why is that? (laughs) We live in this modern family and, and my son said it, but my daughter didn't. And you know, like what, what is that? And so there's this osmosis thing that happens somehow miraculously, but there's also cultural, you know, where we tend to let our male counterparts or are more comfortable with our male counterparts managing the money. And so we're saying we need to, we need to get comfortable ourselves. 
and out of whatever discomfort zone we may sit in with that. So those are sort of the two dimensions of the conversation that we started. And so with that, I want to turn it back over to Manisha and Tama because ladies, you are the star of this show and you know where to pick up best from where we left off. It's great to be back for part two. As Coco mentioned, I'm Tama Smith and I have the pleasure of leading Brighton Jones's Women Living a Richer Life uh, focus around women and wealth. And as Coco so uh, eloquently captured, wealth is a state of mind. It's not necessarily a certain number, but it's a set of uh, behaviors around owning um, our personal finances. I'm joined here today by my fellow and very dear friend and colleague, Manisha Takor, who is a, a nationally renowned expert on personal finance. And for those of you who didn't attend a month ago in part one, Manisha is the author of two books. One um, is entitled On My Own Two Feet. And the second book, which is very relevant for today, is entitled Get Financially Naked, How to Talk uh, Money with Your Honey. And that's exactly what part two today is all about. So just as uh, a quick recap, we talked a little bit about why this topic is important. I won't get into this, but you can see that we as women will be controlling two-thirds of our nation's wealth by 2030. Yet today, 81% of us don't feel financially confident, and 50% uh, of us are deferring long-term financial decisions to our spouse. Um, the UBS team spoke about this groundbreaking research that they've been doing for the last couple of years, and it mirrors exactly the research that we at Brighton Jones have been seeing over the last three years. Why is this topic important? 95% of us as women at some point will be the primary financial decision maker in our household. So whether we like it or not, we need to be empowered in a way that, that is, is best and most comfortable for each of us. We talked uh, a little bit about stewardship. It's why we're um, all members of Athena. Stewardship by definition is the careful and responsible management of something entrusted in one's care. That's how it's defined. And as we know, not only as is, is members of Athena, where we are uh, being trained to take on roles for on corporate uh, boards, but we know that stewardship is important as it relates to money with ourselves, as well as with our significant others, and with our children of all ages and our aging parents and broader community. So with that, I'm going to ask Manisha to join me. Um, we're not going to get into stewardship of money with yourself. That took over the majority of our part one presentation. So Manisha, if you could jump in here and just do a recap on stewardship of money with yourself, and then we can jump right into uh, with your spouse and partner. I love what both Coco and Tama had to say about wealth. And the way I've been thinking about it is um, it's emotional wealth plus financial health. That's what we want. The reason I say it that way is because there's a set of things that if you know, you will have emotional wealth around your money because you will feel calm. And at the same time, your finances will also be healthy. Yet I would say eight out of 10, nine out of 10, crazy successful smart women and men um, that I meet do not know these numbers, although the men talk about it as if they do. 
Um, so the five things in order to have true stewardship of yourself and your money is you should know your monthly spending and savings. That's vital. If you end up getting divorced or you need to change jobs or you want to uh, slow down your lifestyle, those, those numbers will enable you to do the calculations you need to see if it'll work. You want to know your net worth. And the reason that's important is if it's not growing over time, you want to see what's going on um, under the hood to change that. You want your vocational freedom numbers and um, it's numbers because there are a couple components to it. I don't know if you remember this, there was an ad made, campaign maybe four or five years ago from ING and they had these people carrying around these big signs and it was, what's your number? The way um, I was really taught to think about this when I worked at Brighton Jones was that there is this amount of money at which point you no longer need to work and you work because you want to work and it's vocational, your vocational freedom. And you want to know for you what that number is. And if you don't know one and two, it's it's impossible to start calculating number three. And what you want to know about number three is not just what the number is, but how much you need to be saving right now in order to get there. And also, once you get there, how much you can afford to, to draw down. And then related to that, you want to know what your current investment mix is. That plays into all of this in the sense that, especially if you're working towards vocational freedom, um, not only do you need to know how much you want to, you need to be saving each month, but you also need to know what is the mix of investments that is most likely to give you the return you need to generate on those savings to hit those numbers. And then the last piece is knowing what your cash buffer is. And people talk about emergency funds, blah, blah, blah. But I like to think about it more like this. Uh, emergency funds are absolutely in, important, but the, the more vital way that I like to think about it for executive women is that you want your, you know, if you think about yourself, uh, your personal finances are your, your business, literally and figuratively, you want to make sure you don't end up in a cash flow crunch. And with regards to your investments, what that means is you don't ever want to be in a position where if the market is down for three years in a row, which has statistically happened in the past and is statistically likely to happen in the future, that you are ever in a position where you have to sell stocks while the market is down in order to meet your living expenses. Because that's how, you know, when people tell me that the 2007, 2009 ruined their retirement, I know without a doubt one of two things happened. Either they got panicked and they sold, or more commonly, they didn't have these five pieces because if you had had these five pieces, 0709 would have come and gone and you would not have felt any angst. So that's what I want to say about the, the five numbers. Again, we go into it in so much more detail in the webinar in the library, but I also just want to emphasize if these are not numbers you know off the top of your head, I can't tell you how many smart, smart, smart um, women and men do not know these numbers. So don't beat yourself up. Uh, the first video uh, tells you how to find them. So part two um, is to talk about stewardship of your money with your significant other. And I have seen so many different examples over the years. And I want to just share a couple 
of them with you. So you know why I feel so, so strongly about this. These are just three examples of people I've come across recently. One was an extremely high level tech exec at one of the, you know, Fortune 25 tech companies. And uh, her husband, they had met in college. Her husband had an MBA from Harvard and he lost his job in the 07, 09 period. Um, he was working in finance and he looked around a little bit, couldn't get another one and basically became a beach bum or as much of a beach bum as you can become in, in um, San Francisco, given the cold water. But literally, I mean, he just started smoking pot and hanging out and he hasn't worked a day since 09. She wants to get divorced, but she's frozen because it's community property uh, in California. She can owe him alimony. And she just, she literally is absolutely frozen. That's one situation. Um, another situation is another woman who went to a top 10 business school works for um, American Express and was saying to me, I feel so humiliated. I, I work in American Express and I'm not even sure if I can afford to send my kids. We live in, you know, we live in New York. I want to send my kids to private school, but I'm not sure what implications that has on our retirement. And I'm embarrassed to even go talk to anyone because I work for American Express. You'd think I'd know this stuff. But, you know, American Express is a credit card company, not a, um, and she works in marketing. And then a, a third one was an example, and I see this one a lot, where two smart uh, members of a couple will go in and sit down with a financial advisor and the advisor will, A, talk straight to the guy, ignore the woman, but B, the woman will defer to the guy. And what's interesting is I see this in, in same-sex couples too. It's the exact same dynamic. There's like one that, that there's a financial alpha and the financial beta defers to the financial alpha. And what's really disturbing about that is oftentimes the, the one, and I'll just generically use man to refer to the financial alpha, is interested in a much more aggressive strategy. And the financial beta is not comfortable with that or it's the reverse. I've also seen an example of a woman whose husband, um, she's a top 10 um, MBA graduate, super smart, but she chose to stay at home and raise their kids. Her husband is a super successful lawyer. He had a bad experience in 07, 09 because he invested with his executive assistant's son at XYZ brokerage firm and they were all in tech stocks. He lost everything. So he makes, you know, 3 million a year before taxes, but it's all in cash and they, he's never invested a penny of it and it drives her bonkers um, and she doesn't know what to do about it. So these are just some of the situations that are multiple permutations, but these are a lot of the, this gives you a sense of the kind of angst that I am seeing women go through. And so I wanted to highlight and break down like, okay, well, what do I do if any of these situations resonate um, even slightly with me, or even if they don't resonate, how, what mental framework should I be using to think about money in the context of uh, romantic partnership? And the first of the three elements is financial compatibility. And I always say, you know, like when you meet someone special, people ask if you are emotionally compatible, intellectually compatible, compatible from a religious standpoint, compatible on whether or not you want to have kids. When have you ever asked, 
a friend of yours if they are financially compatible with the new person in their life? I mean, nobody asks that. Yet, consistently, the American Psychological Association does these studies every year. Money is the top cause of fights, stress, and endings of marriages. And a huge part of it is because um, in an odd and ironic twist, we are attracted to financial otherness, like quite literally, when we are dating, we will often find um, a level of, of emotional and psychological intoxication by seeing being around somebody whose financial behavior is different than ours doesn't always happen but a lot of times it does and the example i like to give is my own mistake when i first met my now ex-husband 15 years ago i remember we went to the movies and he asked me if i wanted a coke or diet coke with my popcorn and I remember thinking like, oh my God, you do not sneak food in your purse so you don't have to pay the outrageous or snacks in your purse, you don't have to pay the outrageous prices. And I remember and this was before TSA and um, three ounce liquids and all of that. I always used to take an empty water bottle with me um, when I would travel, um, which I did weekly because I wasn't gonna pay three bucks at the airport for water. And so I would go through and then I would fill it at a water fountain. And he used to think like that was the, smartest thing ever and then we got married and it was a disaster it's one of the things that made me write get financially naked because i realized how prevalent financial incompatibility is in relationships and oftentimes it's because we are attracted to each other in other cases where you actually have fairly similar underlying values and beliefs around money it, you may have a compatibility issue simply because the components um, of the way you deal with money are, are different. And I'll, I'll speak to that next. So financial compatibility, the last thing I just want to say about it is there's a gentleman who's written two books that study couples who have been married for like five decades or more and they're happy and what are the top five things that they have in common and number one is shared values and then number two is a mutually agreed upon thought process around money doesn't mean the exact same but it means a mutually agreed upon which brings me to the second point which is in order to have effective stewardship with your significant other um, there are really three components around our money it's our behavior our interest and our knowledge. So we often focus on savers versus spenders, and, and that's a, a pretty big deal. You know, in the case of me and my ex-husband, my goal has always been to have enough principal that I could live off my interest in dividends and never touch the principal and give that away to charity and my nephews and nieces. And my ex's goal was to die with zero. Like, time it perfectly, live it all up. And so saver versus spender is definitely one big thing, but you can, you can on the surface, both be savers, both be spenders and still have acrimony if there's incompatibility on these three levels, behavior, interest, and knowledge. So the, the elements around behavior can be as basic as 
the way in which you keep your um, financial documents? Do you know where, you know, are you very organized in terms of where all of your essential documents are? If something happened to one or the other of you, would you know exactly how to, um, where the documents are, how to get a hold of them, where the money is? Then the next piece would be like, is your interest? I mean, do you actually care? I think financial markets are absolutely fascinating. Um, the man who I am seeing now thinks there it's like the most boring thing on earth to pay attention to, but he does it. It's like dealing with finances is something that he does, like going to the dentist to get your teeth clean, but it's not of deep interest. And then there's knowledge. And this one's really interesting because studies have shown levels of financial literacy. Men know slightly more than women, slightly more, but men's level of confidence around what they know is here. And our level of confidence about what we know is like here. And so oftentimes I will see situations where the alpha, which we'll just call again, the male, but I see the same thing in same sex couples is that the person who talks the, 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 the loudest voice in the room, the, the one who uses the most jargon or talks as if they know, oftentimes does not know. They think they know, but if you listen to what they're saying, it's about as logical as my saying, oh, this morning I woke up and I, I didn't like where my nose was, so I put it on my head. And they're literally saying um, stuff that doesn't make sense. And you don't realize it because they sound knowledgeable. So you think, well, I'll just let them handle our money. So this is such a big thing that I actually, in the book, have put together a, a financial compatibility quiz that has a whole, like 10 different elements of what are the financial behaviors you want to take a look at? What are the financial items of interest? And what are 10 items of knowledge? My publisher, um, Simon & Schuster, won't allow me to share that broadly. Like, I can't send it out to everyone. But I do have permission if people reach out to Tama one-on-one, and she'll leave her contact information at the end, um, they will allow me to to send it out on a one-on-one basis. So um, we've put it together, and it's a wonderful little booklet that you can use um, just for yourself. You don't need to be in a relationship. You can assess your financial behaviors, interest, and knowledge, um, but it's also an incredible tool to use with your significant other because you each can use the booklet and then come together and compare your answers on these different elements the goal is not for each person to be doing the exact same work as the other. The goal is for each person to have the same knowledge of those five key elements that we started off in section one with, no matter who is taking the actual actions or who has more interest. So that's the goal of this. And I have found that when people walk through this quiz, this inventory, it is mind-boggling what what comes up. I've, I've never met anybody who's gone through it and hasn't found either for themselves or for their relationship a better way to handle their finances going forward for simply having identified the place where there was friction. So again, I, I can't email it out to a group, but Tama can send it on my behalf on a one-on-one um, basis. So if you email her, she can get you that. And then the final piece is financial advice. And we actually had a number of 
questions about this at the end of the last presentation. So I'm going to ask Tama yes. to. Yes, um, I was going to say, I've got about four questions to ask you here uh, that we were unable to answer in part one. And so the first question was, at what point in your financial journey should you consider hiring a financial advisor? And is there an age or minimum amount where it makes more sense? Yeah, so um, this is like a chicken and the egg kind of thing. And the chicken is driven by the financial services industry. So historically, it has been extremely difficult to get quality financial advice until you've amassed a million dollars in assets. But how do you get a million dollars in liquid assets to invest if no one's giving you advice? So what's happened is there's always been sort of what I'll call the underbelly of the industry where I have a cousin twice removed who joined uh, the training programs at one of the extremely well-known brokerage houses. And in these programs, what they're supposed to do as trainees is try and build a book of uh, first five million in assets. And the way they do it is by identifying people who have two hundred and fifty thousand or four hundred thousand dollars over there. And so the advice these people are getting are from a twenty-three-year-old. And so up until now, the ability to get quality advice um, when you've had less than a million dollars in assets has been very difficult to come by. Technology has blown that out of the water. So as to when you need it, I would basically say as soon as you start making money, um, if you make the right decisions early on, it makes everything so much easier as to how much for really young people like um, in your 20s um, and early 30s when you're just getting started or if you've got kids in this age, um, if they're female, I always recommend they go to Elevest. And then another one you can check out on a gender neutral basis is Betterment. And I think both of those places are great places to start off because they'll accept accounts where you're putting in, you know, smaller bits of money each month and they'll give you a very limited amount of financial help. Um, what technology has enabled, however, is once you hit 100,000 or more in investable assets, there are increasingly opportunities where a lot of companies who have historically only taken people with a million dollars or more are offering a white label option where they've changed the business model so that they're not coming out to visit you in person. Um, they're doing the all of the work virtually, which you know pre-COVID seemed very revolutionary. Now it just seems normal. And so these firms will provide quality work, the same quality of work as you'd get um, at a million dollar or above level. They have a slightly different format. Um, so for instance, my favorite, because when I was working, I was associated with them. It's called Open Plan, and it's a white label. And you go there, and if you've got a hundred thousand to a million, you can um, get a financial plan. And then the the model there is you pay for a financial plan, and then if you want to have the ability to call them up. Um, about any personal finance question going forward, if you pay a, a, a monthly fee and it's like $100 or $150 a month, they will manage your assets and talk to you. There are increasingly wonderful places like this. 
And then if you have a million dollars or more, everybody wants your money. So then it becomes, how do you vet that? We'll get to that in a moment. But that's the, the, the short answer is, as soon as you start making money, you should have financial advice. And it used to be you couldn't get it unless you have a million dollars. And now you can. And the training wheels are places like Elevest and Betterment. And then you're riding on your own between 100,000 and a million with a lot of these white label option. And then most of those feed into a wealth management firm at the million dollar and, and up level. So Manish, in the, in the interest of time, I just want to quickly cover a couple more financial advisory questions before we move on to stewardship of uh, adult children and, and uh, parents. Can you just touch on the fiduciary advisor? Uh, one of the questions was, is it a normal to charge a fee rather than a, a percent of assets managed? And then what do you do if you have uh, some cross-border international needs? Do you need a separate advisor? Sure. So let me loop that question into the, the, the point that I wanted to make about financial advice, which is what I would say is the five-point checklist for getting a financial advisor. The first question that I advise everyone to ask is of a potential advisor, and I recommend that you talk to two or three before making a decision. Are you a fiduciary? That is the biggest question out there. There are two types of legal structures uh, under which financial advisors operate. Um, one is fiduciary, the other is suitability. Under fiduciary, your company set up under a legal structure that reports into the SEC, you have a legal obligation to put the interest of your client ahead of your personal interest and the firm's personal interest. Most people think, well, that's logical. Isn't that the whole industry? No, it's 20% of the industry. It's growing, but it's 20%. These firms are called um, Registered Investment Advisors, RIAs. The other 80% operates under a standard called suitability, which says that, oh, and this group reports up conveniently to a self-regulating entity called FINRA. And this group adhered legally as in a structure that enables them to adhere to a standard that says, as long as the advice you give is suitable, it's okay to put your interest ahead of your clients or your firm's interest ahead of your clients. So what does that mean? It basically means, let's say you're gonna buy a blue chip mutual, you're recommending for your client a blue chip mutual fund um, under suitability. And there's one managed out there by iShares. Um, it's an ETF and it's got a 10 basis point fee. And then there's one managed in-house and it has a 1% fee. Well, it's essentially the same fund, so it's suitable but you can put the client in the higher fee one, which benefits you and your firm because it's suitable. And so a lot of people tell me that finding a financial advisor feels like looking for a used car. Like it just feels slimy and the pricing's opaque and you feel like you're being taken for a ride. And the reason you have that feeling is because that's what the suitability world feels like. So ask, are you a fiduciary? People don't have to offer up. I'm a fiduciary or I'm suitability, but if you ask them, they have to answer. 
the second is you your second checklist that you want to understand when interviewing an advisor is what is their investment strategy? There are as many investment strategies as there are styles of dressing. I personally highly recommend a style called evidence-based investing, which essentially the way I like to describe it is there, you know, if you're on a freeway, there are two types of drivers, people who drive in the right lane, people drive in the left lane. And when you're driving in the right lane, you're probably going the speed limit. You've got a podcast on if you're going in the left lane, you're weaving in and out of traffic, trying to get ahead. And what happens? You both hit the traffic jam at the same time, but the driver in the left lane is like all frazzled and the driver in the right lane is calm. And evidence-based investing is like right lane investing. And what's called active investing is left lane investing. There can be roles for both, um, but for the core of your portfolio, I always recommend evidence-based investing. Personal opinion, but you want to know the investment strategy. And I, again, I cannot tell you how many people I meet. I'm like, what's your investment strategy? They don't know what their advisor is employing. So are you a fiduciary? What's your investment strategy? Oh, and I would never ever work with an advisor who's not a fiduciary. And then the third one, which gets to one of the questions Tama raised, what are your all-in fees? So up until now, the standard for charging fees has been a percent of assets under management. Usually starts at 1% and then it declines. You know, it could be, it can, can decline as much as by half as your assets get larger. But what a lot of people don't know is that's not the only fee. There's that fee, and then there's the fee for the investments that you are being put into. And so what you always wanna ask is, if you are managing my money with what you know about me and the kind of portfolio that you would be building, what will my all-in fees be? And if you don't ask for all-in fees, they're just gonna give you the advisory fee, not everything. And I like to see all-in fees at one and a half percent or less. And I can't tell you how many people from the suitability side will tell me, I don't pay my advisor anything because they're paying their advisor, you know, a half a percent. And then the advisor is putting them in products that have a three percent expense ratio because they're suitable and their own company manages it and they get bonus points for putting you in it. So you have a three and a half percent all-in fee and you think you're paying a half a percent. So asking, are you a fiduciary? What's my investment strategy? What are the all-in fees? Related to that, a lot of people ask me, can you get hourly planning? And the answer is yes and no. There are individuals who do hourly financial planning. Um, the clearinghouse for that is the best one is Garrett Planning Networks, two R's, two T's. The issue is there's just only so many hours in a day. And so the high quality folks who do this book up so fast. I have no more hourly planners to recommend people to because they have waiting lists that are so long. The other problem with hourly planning, it's just like working with a lawyer on an hourly basis. They have to get paid. So every conversation you have with them, the, the clock is ticking. And that brings me to the fourth point, which is what are the services that are provided for that fee? If you are getting the right services, you will not feel that you need an hourly rate. 
So if you are frustrated with your advisor and feel like you need to be paying an hourly rate, that's a sign right there that they are not giving you all the items that you should be getting for in true financial life planning these days. And that speaks to my fifth point, which is you want to know what is the prospective client process at a firm. So the kind of advisor I would argue you want is an advisor whose prospective client process lets you experience what I would argue are the services you should be receiving in exchange for that fee. Number one service is those five things that I identified, stewardship with yourself, that's the bare minimum, that they're organizing all of that. You know all of that. But then they go on to understand who you are as a person and what is important to you. And they make sure that without selling you any of this stuff, that they're looking through your insurance policies. They're looking through your estate documents. They're speaking with your CPA on a regular basis to make sure that your portfolio is being tax efficient. If you're thinking about getting divorced, that's a great time to hire a financial advisor because they can um, help give you guidance before you get divorced. And typically what they'll do is just charge you a retainer. Um, typically the amount would be um, the annual fee on a, a million dollars. And the experience that you want to have is that somebody is literally your financial general physician and on demand. Any question you have, like, should I buy or lease my car? how much of my child's college expense should I put in a 529 plan that they'll answer any question that you that you have. If they're just doing investing, you do not have a true financial advisor. So those are the questions and what to look for and why the hourly question is a little bit difficult. And then in terms of cross-border, what I recommend is finding, go interview people, go through the prospective client process, interview a domestic advisor and ask them, how do they work with cross-border issues? And then that firm will be able to tell you whether or not they have depth and people in-house that are able to do that or whether they partner with people overseas. But you want a domestic partner rather than having two different halves, two different advisors who aren't talking to each other. It's like getting your hair cut and having like one person cut on this side and one person cut on that side. It won't all come together. So as usual, I'm talking a lot and we're running out of time. So I am going to address stewardship with kids, parents, community, and try and loop in some of the questions that I know we have had from, from the first session. Kids, how do you help your kids get money smart? I think the absolute worst possible idea is to tell them to go take some money and invest in the stock market. That teaches them nothing. That teaches them like how to play Russian roulette. What you really want to teach them is how to be a good steward of their money. The single best book that you can use is called How to Make Your Kid a Money Genius, Even If You're Not, <laughs> written by Beth Koblener. And it literally runs from age three to age 23 of what at each stage you, your child should be learning from you about money since we don't teach it in schools. As a parent, a guide that you can use to help 
steward your your child's financial knowledge is by Ron Lieber, L-I-E-B-E-R. He's the personal finance columnist for the New York Times. And the book is called The Opposite of Spoiled. And it's a really great mental framework. So those are the two books that I think can most help you steward your child. Uh, two other things that I want to say, I encourage parents to say no. <laughs> um, the, the cost of raising a child has exploded way faster than inflation. And that's because the standard of living of the average child has grown dramatically um, in terms of the kinds of activities and gadgets and things that are considered essential. So don't feel that you're denying kids things if it's digging into your finances, which brings me to college. The two most common questions I get are how much of the percent of college should I be cost? Should I be saving for my kids? Do I use a 529? And, and then um, the third one would be, do I save for my retirement money? So here's my argument on college. I feel like 529s are the optimal plan to use. I feel like you somewhere between 50 and 75% of your expected college costs makes sense to put in a 529 if you are unable to fully fund your kids. The, the gold standard would be if you are able, when each child is born, to put in five years worth. They allow you to do a one-time five-year contribution for each parent to put in, and then you have this lump sum. You don't contribute again, and it grows. Most people can't do that. They contribute each year. So try and save between 50 and 75% of your child's college costs, but don't tap your investment, your retirement accounts for the remainder. I know student loans are such a huge issue, but one of the tough things that we all have to just come to terms with is the fact that in some places you may have, it may make more sense to start at a state school and then transfer because no one asks where you start. They always ask where you graduated from. And bending down your retirement assets to, to pay for your kids' education is essentially burdening your children with your retirement. Manisha, one of the part one questions we had about adult children, since you've captured the, the younger side of kids, someone in part one said, look, I'm in the Bay Area, I'm in retirement, but the Bay Area is expensive. And so I'm, we're subsidizing the living expenses of our adult children in the Bay Area. Um, is this the right thing to do? No, no. And I hate saying that, but the answer is if subsidizing them impacts your ability to maintain your, your standard of living in retirement, then you shouldn't be doing it. And this is one of those reasons, like again, when I was talking about financial advisors, and if you find a good financial life planning firm this is the kind of analysis they will do for you. They will say, okay, if you are spending this, given you've got this lump of assets, if you're spending this to, to subsidize your adult children, then this is the impact that you're going to have, uh, it's going to have on your retirement. This is how, how much it's going to impact the odds that you might run out of money. And then you can make the choice. So it, it's hard for me without knowing the numbers to basically say, no, don't. But what I can say is if it's stressing you out, if you're feeling um, tension around it, the answer is no, don't do it. There are a lot of great jobs. I grew up in Indiana. There are a lot of great jobs in the Midwest. Uh, standard of living is 
Um, a lot lower. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. You're burdening your kids with your retirement, which gets to elderly parents. And this is going to be a huge problem for probably all of us on this call. Uh, Manisha, one more question because it's oh, yeah. related to kids before we, because elder parents, elderly parents is important. Someone asked in the chat about um, uh, insights around uh, differently able children and special needs planning. Yeah. You know, in, in thinking about a future, future women and wealth uh, continued virtual series here, there's a whole topic on how to address this through your financial yeah. advisor in partnership with estate planning. There's a whole number of different types of special purpose trusts. But Manisha, why don't you cover that briefly before we jump to elder parents. Yeah, I mean, a key thing are literally called special needs trusts. And there are a variety of them that have different types of tax benefits. The way you work on it is with an estate lawyer in conjunction with your financial advisor. You can either talk to the estate lawyer that you like the most and have them pull in an advisor that you work with, or my preference is to uh, pick the advisor that you like because so much more the the legal setup is, I don't want to say boilerplate, but it's fairly straightforward, whereas the part that can really get screwed up is the financial part. So I recommend finding a financial advisor or a advisory firm that has experience with helping parents who have um, special needs situations because there are some wonderful tools that you can use to ensure um, continuity of, of care. At the end of the day, the message that I would like everyone to take away is that if we want to move the needle on gender equality, equal participation in our finances, whether it's with ourselves actually doing something with it or with our partner, equal participation is at the heart of that. And it's what enables women's financial security. And then the second thing that I want to say is the financial services industry is changing dramatically. It used to be you'd go to an advisor and they tell you how to invest your assets. There are still plenty of those types of advisors out there. You want a firm that will uh, be your financial general physician and take care of the totality. And if you do not know the five things that I um, said when I started off um, that you should know about your money, your numbers, that's a sign to me that you would benefit enormously from working with a financial life planning firm. And thanks to technology at asset levels from $100,000 on up, you can start to find, well, at any asset level now, you can start to find quality advisors. And if you have questions, you can talk to Tama and she can guide you towards places or resources, firms, people we know, or uh, uh, suggestions of people you should talk to and interview. And again, I recommend interviewing two or three. And the third thing I just want to end with is if any of this was confusing or overwhelming, I just want you to know you are not alone. 90% <laughs> of the people I meet, this is all new stuff. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act Podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.